Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Rethink Culture, the podcast that shines a spotlight on business leaders who are rethinking workplace culture. My name is Andreas Constantino, and I'm your host, and I'm also chairman and founder at Slash Data. I'm an accidental micromanager who turned servant leader and over the years developed a personal passion for workplace culture. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share on the podcast or have a guest we should definitely bring on the show, please let me know by emailing rethink at rethinkculture.co. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Gene Brown. Gene is the founder of the City Bin Company. It's a leading waste management company and a five-time winner of the Deloitte Best Managed Company in Ireland. Gene has led teams across Ireland as well as the Middle East, uh, namely UAE, Oman, and Qatar. And he's very passionate about service culture. He's going to tell us lots more about it. Gene, welcome to the Rethink Culture podcast. Good morning, and thank you very much, Andres. Delighted to be here. So tell us a bit about Citibin and what led you to create it. Okay. And why a waste management company? Okay. So the Citibin company started as an experiment, really, an experiment in service, customer service and service quality. My background is I'm a quality engineer. I graduated in the late 80s after studying industrial engineering and production engineering. I was quality manager in a manufacturing company in Ireland. I was very much into the quality quality movement at that time, total quality management, statistical process control, everything very manufacturing orientated. And then I got a job in, in quality manager as a service company. And I really enjoyed the service aspect of the quality of the quality movement, particularly because in a service industry, it's very unforgiving. You don't get a second chance to get it right. So unlike manufacturing, you can make a lot of mistakes in manufacturing on the factory floor, but providing you catch it before it goes out to the customer, the customer thinks this is a great product. When you're in a service industry, the production and, con- and consumption happens at the same time. So if you get your hair cut and it goes bad, you can't pretend it didn't happen. When you go to a restaurant and you get poor service, you can't pretend you didn't see it. Same on an airline, a bank, etc. So this intrigued me. And uh, after that, I set up a consultancy. I was very young. I didn't call myself a consultant. Uh, I was only 24, maybe, in business excellence and, and service quality. And then I realized after a couple of years of that, that while I knew how to talk the talk, I didn't know if I could walk the walk. It's, it's, I won't say it's easy to be a consultant, but when you're a consultant in a very narrow space, you don't understand the, the, the full business and the challenges of the full business. So I wondered, could I do it myself? You know, if, I, if it was my business, could I, you know, walk the talk? So I teamed up with a friend of mine from school. We spent a year looking for a business to enter. Any business, we didn't care. All I wanted to do was see, could I apply these quality management principles to a service industry? At the end of that year, we discovered the waste management business. We knew zero, I mean zero, about waste management. Why did we choose waste management? We chose it because, A, my business partner at the time could uh, had a HGV license and was a great, came from a very a great entrepreneurial family uh, and could turn his hand to anything. And B, the service in that industry was awful. I mean, pretty awful. And we, back then, we could look good quickly. We couldn't look other, we couldn't go into hotels or other industries. We didn't have the capital and these other industries were, were not bad, but this was bad industry. And uh, 
we overnight we literally said, yeah, we're going into the waste management industry. And that led to the formation of the City Bin Company. So that was when? That was how far back? I'm sorry. That was in, we started on the 2nd of January, 1997. Uh, we had one Ooh. truck and uh, two customers way back then. It was, uh, I think our success, I say, is down to 50% naivety and 50% luck. And I want to dive more into the culture, of course. But before we get to that, I want to ask about Gene and how, what were, the, what were the formative experiences, the childhood influences that helped you in that journey? Okay. Yeah, good question. I, I, I would say my mother, undoubtedly, who's since passed away, by my mother's meticulous planner. Mm. She always, she had a saying that if something is worth doing, it's worth doing right. Eventually that message got through to me. And I, she passed away, as I said, but, but uh, she, she told me once that when I was very young, maybe in about eight years of age, at a parent-teacher-style meeting, the teacher told her that I was the nicest boy that he had ever seen coming through the school in all his years. And I think that ties in with the quality kind of movement. To me, it's very, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. There's a place, everything has a place and there's a place for everything. So that whole quality or doing it right first time sits very well with me. And um, she certainly inspired me, I think. And um, I came from a quite a humble beginning. My, my dad was a factory worker. My mother was a housewife or a homemaker, as, as you call it now. And um, yeah, that's that's my early experience. And then how did, back to Citibin, how did that passion for service influence the culture that you ended up building? Yeah, to be honest, I didn't know very much about culture, right? Because I didn't have a, before starting the City Bin Company, I was self-employed, right? I had my own kind of business in those years and I was much younger, obviously. And um, it was really all about the service. I wanted to build a company that delivered amazing customer experiences. And then, you know, that was, that was the prism that underpinned everything. And then you, you know what you want to do. You're young, you're naive, you're ambitious, you know, the world is your oyster. Then you go for it. You haven't much to, to lose when you're in your mid-20s and you, you don't have your family and you don't have a mortgage. You, there's not a lot to lose on your reputation uh, and a bit of ego damage if it, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't go wrong, if it doesn't go right. And uh, set up the company. And then you got to figure out as you employ people, you know what you want them to do, but now you got to get them to do it. You know, you know, what, you know, it comes natural to you as a person, but it might not come natural to the next. So you have to learn how to hire for a particular culture. You have to learn how to mm-hmm. train for a particular culture. Um, so it's really a service culture. You know, how can we, how can we deliver amazing customer experiences? That, that's it. And to this day, everything, that's the framework. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't fit that framework, we don't do it. And you were telling me earlier that the values, so the service culture, I assume, in your, in your case, is as unique to the company, to Citibin, as a fingerprint is to a person. I love that quote. Yeah. What makes the Citibin culture unique? 
Yeah, well, I think our, the values of any company underpin the culture, drives the culture. So when, when you're an, entre, an entrepreneur in particular, particularly in the very early, early stages of the company, you're kind of hiring friends or people you know to cover, help you for an hour or two here and there. So the culture of a, the culture of a small entrepreneurial company is pretty much, in my mind, reflects the values of the founder. You know, it's very hard to go against your own values you know, on a day-to-day basis over the long run. So then, but after that, you're, you're employing lots of different people from different backgrounds and you're trying to, you know, bring in professional management and all that, but you want to keep that culture that you, that, that aligns with the vision. So you gotta, you gotta build that out. So we came up with the, we call them the principles, but you know, other companies call them the values and th- those underpinned everything. And our, we have six principles. We started off with 10 and then we got it down to kind of eight and then we got it down to six. But before I get into them, you know, we'd say we sat down collectively with the management team at the time and we said, okay, what are, what are, what are the kind of values of this company? And, you know, I wanted everybody to contribute. And there was a broad range and we put them all in on day one, you know, we get 10. And then at the end of, you know, a year later, when we're doing our kind of annual planning and we look at the, the, the values, we say, look, at value number four, whatever it may be, is that really a value of this company? Or is it a nice to have? Is it something that we'd like to inspire you? Or are we actually living it? Because if we're not actually living it, and we've had a whole year to do it or two years, let's just scrap it. Then it's just a nice to have and it's not us. So we're, we eventually came up with six. And the first one that's always been there is don't think waste, think service. You know, we just, we're a service business that just happens to collect waste. We're not a waste. I never get out of the bed in the morning thinking I'm in the waste industry. Never, ever, ever. I don't go to the waste management trade shows at all, ever. Personally, I can't think of anything worse to do. Uh, it doesn't inspire me. But I, w- I, w- I will read every book about a service industry. I want to f- know who's the best service industry in Asia. What's the best service industry in the U.S.? What's the latest thinking in service? And then apply them to our little waste industry. Now, we have people in the company who go to these trade shows who are, and, and they have to go and they know, their, they know the business very well. But for me and, and, and driving the business, it's, it's really all about this service and it just happens to be waste. And that's an example. I mean, I won't go through them all, but the first one is don't think waste, think service. Our, our second one, which is here in front of me, is treat the customer the way you would like a business to treat your parents. <laughs> you know, so you, you don't see many businesses with that as a value, and you definitely don't see waste and waste companies with that as a value. So why? So it's very, very unique to the City Bin Company. But what does it mean? So if you look at our industry. of the people we employ are in the field. They're either driving a truck or they're on the back of the truck. They're typically male and they're typically young. I mean, it's a young man. It's very physical. uh, uh, They're typically young guys in in their 20s on the back of the truck in particular and younger, late teenagers and and so on. And, you know, this is a, a way for us to, to have them relate to our customers. When at one, where this principle came out of, when my mother passed away and, and I saw my father who was trying to deal with the Vodafone, the mobile phone company, and he was like on, on the phone trying to, you know, sort out some, and, and the way they were treating him and, and, you know, they took no, in my mind, they weren't taking into account his age or his lack of commute, computer expertise or even smartphone expertise. And it was shocking. So I was thinking, wow, I hope our people in our company aren't treating our customers like this. 
so said, look, you know, imagine that the customer that's at that gate with the bin or is late coming out the gate or is rushing to get the kids to school and trying to get the bins out, you know, and they ask you to slow down or wait a minute. Yeah. I said, imagine that's your parents asking that question. You know, how would you like them to be treated by a utility? So that's, you know, the second principle and, and so on and so on. So they're very, very unique to us, but they're all about the service. And there are values, like I said, we call them principles. So that, that underpins everything. Did you have people join the company because they really bought the values? Yeah, we, we have. We've had people write to us and, and they're generally, they were customers. So they saw how we interact, they saw how we act and they write to us and say, our CFO actually was an amazing lady, wrote to us, she was a customer of ours and just liked the tone of the correspondence she was getting and what she saw you know, at the gate, getting the to her to her house, and and, ma- and many many others, many others. And you told me a story earlier about a lady being cut off at the roundabout by one of your drivers, which I thought really well captured the service attitude. Do you want to recount that? Very very early in our history, we may have been a year old, uh, so I'm, I'm guessing it's the late nineties, and uh, we may have had four or five employees. I don't know, but but. Uh, a lady rang the office. I answered the phone. Uh, of course, I was the first. Um, I was the first receptionist. I was the first accountant. I was the first customer service agent. I was the first salesperson. You know, in, in a founder-led company, you're doing all these things at the beginning. And um, a lady rang, and she was quite upset and irate, and she felt that our driver had had uh, one of the big trucks, and the trucks. I guess they are quite intimidating if you're in a car going around a roundabout. Oh, yeah. Felt that, that the driver had cut her off. And, and maybe even, like, if I recall, that, that she may have beeped the horn, and I'm sure he may have made a gesture, an unpleasant gesture towards her uh, in the spur of the moment. And uh, she was quite upset. So when the driver arrived in after the, the, the finished his, his route, I approached him and I said that this lady had uh, uh, was quite irate. He dismissed it, said, no, no, nonsense. So I told him, and it wasn't, I mean, it just happened. It, hadn't, it wasn't premeditated. I instinctively told him that, look, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go and buy some flowers. You're going to go to her house, and you're going to apologize. And uh, if you don't do that, then don't come back in here tomorrow. Now, I'm not advocating that. You can't, you can't do that anymore. But this was instinctive, and it's how strong I felt at the time about the culture, and, and still do. And what did he end up doing? He bought her flowers. He went to the house and he apologized. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, that wasn't, I didn't do that so to become a, a little legend around the company. And I, I don't, but that story still is being told today. I don't tell it, but it's passed down through the, through the ranks, you know, and, and uh, it's a little folklore uh, within the company about, about the service. And there's been many, many such, such instances. So there was another story You were telling me earlier about how the service culture permeates, or the service value permeates the city bin culture, about the bonus plan, uh, which shrinks when your service is not being delivered as you like. Do you talk about that? Yeah, there's two two parts to that. One is the kind of annual bonus plan, which is tied to the net our NPS score, which is the net promoter score, which measures our customer satisfaction. So everybody in the, in the company, their annual bonus, 50% of their annual bonus is directly tied to the 
ongoing year-to-date net promoter score within the company. And every Friday, everybody in the company from the top to the bottom gets a by email the current NPS score and, and, and a list of all of the comments that the customers survey that week made about the service. So that's that's one part of it. So we're constantly reinforcing the service and, and the customer satisfaction and the service culture through the NPS score. And the second one is whereby at the start of the month, the, there's a bonus pool for the frontline staff and it always starts off at 100% on the first of the month. And then as there are non-conformances, we'd say in the quality language, you say we miss a bin, we didn't empty a bin, but we should have, etc. That pool that starts to fall. So, but it falls for everybody. So let's say there's, let's say there's 20 routes or 25 routes, different drivers out in a particular city, and you know, driver num- dri- route number six doesn't empty a bin that they should have emptied. Well, the bonus falls for every all the drivers. Not mm. so it's very collective. Uh, so that way, if 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 I I as a driver know, listen, I can't make that bin today because of whatever reason, or I need to finish early, or for what, what I can ask another driver to go and pick that up for me. And you know, there's an incentive for for people to help each other out on on the routes as well. And that we that ties, you know, that fully loops into our our brand promise for customers, because our brand promise is that we'll do the job right each and every time, and that they'll never have the customer never have to listen to sad stories and excuses. And if we break our promise, then they don't pay. So on the B two B side, if the customer's bin isn't emptied on the day it's supposed to be emptied, the customer doesn't pay for that lift. Mm-hmm. But that, the cost that the that revenue that the company would have lost is taken from the pool, the bonus pool. So that's how the that's how it makes sense. That's how it shrinks. So it's it's totally connected. So you're encouraging you're encouraging both collectivism, and you're encouraging a service oriented culture at the same time. Yes, correct. Yeah, and I can't remember where we got that, but we certainly stole it because one thing I would say is you know we we're the greatest stealers of good ideas from you know other companies, and every time. You know, if I read a book, if I only get one idea out of it that we can come, you know, if it could, it'll be 300 page book. But if you only get one paragraph with that one idea that you can apply to the business to make it better, then it's absolutely, then it was totally worth the the 300 page read. So I think I'm, I think it was um, FedEx used to use something like that in their early days. I read a book from one of the FedEx founders and, and that's where I stole that uh, particular concept. And talking about stealing culture, what's one aspect of your culture you'd be proud if someone stole from you um if people wrote their values with that like we did with terms of that that the a they're not societal they're, they're not they're not society most values you see up on the wall in companies i call them societal kind of aspirational values yeah. honesty yeah. integrity respect nice things yeah that's what you're trying to teach your that's what you're trying to teach your children but i and there should be table stakes, but I don't think they mean much up on the wall of a company. Then you come one level down from that, there's category values, right? So, you know, for, if you're in the fast food sector, a category value is cleanliness and speed, right? And if the, mm-hmm. But I don't think that's inspiring either because all your competitors are going to have that, right? Because you need that to survive in the mm-hmm. food industry and there's certain things in the waste industry you need as well. So there you're kind of category values, for the business you're in, then if you can if you can manage to go below that 
and get the values that are, like I said, as unique to your culture as your fingerprint is to you. You know, what can, what's so unique about your culture that your competitors would really can't even get their head around? If you can, if you can get to that, I think that's really a great place to be in terms of a, a, a unique culture because there are people out there that like a particular culture because it fits with their own personal values. And if you can marry those, then you don't, you know, you have people who are so happy to come to work because they don't find what they're doing at odds with their own personal values. I think that would be great. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Gene, I know we, we talked earlier about another game I like to play with guests, which is the two truths and one lie. Mm -hmm. And I kept it from the introduction, but I think it's time we get to it now. Okay. And you had some time to think about it. I had. Um, I, so what, what are two truths and one lie about yourself? Okay, so I'll tell you, so I'll tell you three things and then one of them yeah, is a lie. Of okay. course. And we'll uh, get to it at the end. Okay. I spent a night under arrest in Kazakhstan. Wow. That's number one. I run in excess of 35 half marathons every year and I have a passion for cars mm -hmm. they're my three statements I, I say, I, you look fit so I could buy the marathon story I don't know about the Kazakhstan story but we'll get to it <laughs> we we'll, we'll find the two truths and no one lie at the end okay so back to city bin and culture something else you were talking about is the employee brand promise mm. And especially for your demographic of employees, how education is important or how you think education is important. Can you talk about what you do, uh, what, the pro what, pro what promise you give to employees? This was inspired by my own story. I mean, I, if nothing else, over the last 27 years, I've been very well educated through the City Bin Company to go back and do formal education. When, when we weren't that long in business and the business was successful and my background was as i said in engineering after three years or two years you know we go to the accountant and he's he'd say at the end of the year whatever you know officially we were profitable and then he'd be talking about the balance sheet honest to god i had no idea what he was talking about when he was talking about the balance sheet items and um depreciation and capex i, I mean yeah. come from engineering i knew nothing yeah and business was growing quickly so very i and it was a very capital intensive business right so i knew then i need to either figure this stuff out or i need to we need to hire a ceo or you know who can who knows this stuff who can go talk to the banks and that led me to go back to business school in the early years of the company and, and do do my my MBA, and then after that I did two more master's degrees. After that, through the through the company, and lots and lots of executive education with 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 YPO. So if nothing else, mm -hmm. I've been extremely well educated over the last uh, uh, twenty five or twenty seven years. And um, but not everybody in our company has been so lucky. And most of the again the profile of the people that we have on the front eighty percent of our people are on the front line, and typically they would not have third-level education. Very few of them, I think, very small percentage would have third-level education on the front line. We've lots of managers who are very well-educated, but from the people who are actually delivering the service haven't had the opportunities that, that I've had. So we came up with an employee brand promise to go along with the customer brand pr promise. And, and the employee brand promise said, okay, if you join our company, 
as well as treating you with fairness, gratitude, and respect, which are like table stakes, that we, mm -hmm. as a company, help them achieve their lifelong education goals. So if somebody on the back of a truck or a driver wanted to do a, a, a course in, in, you know, a chef or an accountant or a mechanic, we'd, we'd sit down with the employee and support them in that financially and time-wise. Now, the proviso was that they had to have the right service culture, mm -hmm. right? As long as they were supporting our culture and delivering the service that we want, we would help them meet their lifelong education goals. And that could be a three-year program. We've had drivers that go do an accountancy, you know, six-year accountancy program and various bits and pieces. We've had great staff, you know, who went on this program, did a, did a particular something in one of the universities through nighttime. And then when they got their qualification, they ended up leaving the company. But that's okay. Because at the end of the day, you know, people don't stay in this on the back of a truck is very demanding, very physical. If you get three or five years, somebody's with you and they're delivering amazing service and then they have an opportunity to go on and do something something else and uh, 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 that they want to do and, and have a better career path. We're very supportive of that. And then we, but we want to ask them when they finish, listen, do you know somebody else in your community, your brother or sister or whatever, who come, mm -hmm. come and, and, and work for us? And um, yeah, so I think that that's our little piece on the on the education uh, that we offer to all staff. But really, it's offered to all staff. But it's not. It's not. It's not, we're not trying to make the well educated even more well educated. Mm -hmm. It's not twenty percent. It's really the eighty percent mm. haven't had the opportunity. And and we, we've had a number of programs and sales and different parts of the, the company where where people have been able to avail of that. It reminds me of what uh, Arnie Malham was saying in a previous episode, which is he builds a business where he cares about the people, like building, uh, helping people grow. And then he is assured that people will help the business grow. So he takes care of the, the people and people take care of the business. Well, you cannot deliver amazing customer experiences with people who are fed up and who are unhappy and who aren't, but more importantly, aren't being treated well. You know, one of the biggest things I see today and, and, and in my mind, how to square this circle, everybody is a consumer. You know, even I see it myself and, you know, my family, whoever, everybody is consumer wants better value now, wants better prices, mm -hmm. you know, and everybody is kind of pushing down, 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 down. The competition is out there is putting, pushing down prices. And, and then you see the companies, you know, to, to achieve that, they're, you know, in, in the UK and Ireland, there's kind of zero hour contracts. They're not treating people mm -hmm. fairly because they're keeping the costs down. So how do you deliver a great product at a great price and great value and treat your people great at the same time? I mean, it's, it's a real ruby cube to try and, you know, ma match everything. I remember when I was studying the UK in the 90s, there was this program called uh, Crystal Clear along these lines for how banks would change their terms and conditions so that it was understandable by pretty much everyone that everyone who wasn't a lawyer. And that made a big difference to me. Like it made banks look as if they cared about us people and not us pockets. And the same thing I would say applied to you know the legal profession in general. I wish that that profession was more service-oriented 
because you know whatever you document you look at, even if it's a standard consumer agreement, it's just mired with legal language that you can never possibly hope to understand. And there was a contract that came across recently for developers called the Contract Killer, which basically is a friendlier version of a contract for software development teams that just reads like you're speaking to, to a human being. And I wish we took that service paradigm that, you know, treating people with compassion as opposed to just getting a job done more often. Um, something else I wanted to get to is you have interacted with people in many different nationalities, especially diverse nationalities, you know, Ireland and then Middle East. So I think you have led teams in Iran, in Qatar, in UAE. What was one of the things that really surprised you? And what was one of the things that you didn't have to change one bit as you expanded the business in the Middle East? The culture that we had in Ireland, the service culture, and, you know, again, the employee brand promise and treating people with respect, that transferred very, very well to the Gulf. And we were told before we went that that, that our culture wouldn't work there. Most of the people that, and, and it, we had a partner there, so it wasn't like we started from scratch. So we took over uh, their B2B business, which was very big. And uh, there was like a, 1,100 employees in the Middle East. And we, most of the employees were like driving the trucks or on the back of the trucks. And even in the, in the, in the office, they were mostly from, you know, Asia, like Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, the Philippines, those communities. And we were pleasantly surprised how they, like these same principles we used, you know, the same way we treated the people, the same, you know, the, the same methodologies and everything mm -hmm. framework we brought with us. And they all transferred very, very seamlessly mm -hmm. to the frontline staff, to the people mm -hmm. driving the trucks. And they embraced the technology because we had our own software and, and, and the way as well and the, so I was reverse surprised so the people at the front line from these countries no problem they, they were traditionally it was a very hierarchical it was a very it was one way traffic yes. they were told what to do and they did it they, they had no autonomy and they didn't question it and you know and sometimes in those cultures in that part of the world these people they're very afraid of making a mistake because they're afraid if they make a mistake they get fired if they get fired they have to go home and they have no no uh, uh, income, so they really embraced the service culture and the autonomy. The bottleneck was nearly in the middle middle management, the existing middle management that we inherited. They weren't so quick to embrace it because they were losing control. Mm -hmm. Because right. up to them, they had the control, and these these were these most of these people were, or many of these people were not from the same countries, many of them were, were, you know, from Europe, and you'd expect that they would be used to this uh, culture. So th they resisted a bit because they were losing their control. The middle management were losing control if, they, if the front line employees get more and more empowerment. And you need less, and you need, you need less middle management as well. Because why do you need less middle management? Because it's not a control type, it's not, it's not a hierarchical or command and control mm. environment. So if it's a command and control then you need people to do the commanding and the controlling. If yes. it's autonomy, you know, you don't need yes. that. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, Jim, if if I were to ask some of your all-time employees, mm. what what three adjectives would they use to describe you? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Fair, I hope. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I think fair. I think they describe something about the service culture somehow. How you can bring that into into an adjective? Uh, I'd say attention to detail. Yes. Mm-hmm. And from your mother, I guess. Yeah, sometimes we've done these studies. You know, you have to do these three sixties, and and uh, people have to say stuff about you. So I've done many of those over the years. These uh, and um, yeah, so I think what typically used to come back when we did this was about uh, focus and uh, attention to detail. I think that's mm-hmm. so I, when I when I want to when I apply myself, I could be very very focused on attention to detail. Yeah. And was there a time during the Citibank years that you fundamentally challenged your assumptions and your way of thinking and you said, I really need to do something different here. I really need to change the way I think. Was there a hard lesson you learned that changed you? Yeah, I think it was in the early years and it was naivety on on my my behalf about competition. Mm. Some of the ruthlessness of competitors and the general ruthlessness of competition anyway. I mean, by its nature, you know, in business, you're, there's only X amount of customers. And in our industry, you know, in the type of utility business, you, do, you don't have two waste providers at your home. You don't have two waste providers. Mm-hmm. You have one. So if, if, you're, if you, either you have it or the comp, one of the competitors have, have it, yeah. right? So that, I, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't really ready for that dirty side of business, you know, that kind of business. And that was a bit of a wake-up call for me. And um, because I never thought too much about the competitors, I was always thinking about the customers and and the service. And we've had some kind of quite unfortunate events, Mm -hmm. uh, nasty events over the years. We had a depot burned out in Dublin. Wow. We had an arson attack on our business when we about 10 days after we entered the Dublin market. That's nasty. Yeah, so um, I wasn't ready for that, uh, for sure. And coming back to the other question, how would you like to be described? How do you see yourself as a different leader? Like, what kind of leader are you, if you want, if you can summarize your leadership style? Yeah, for the first 10 years, maybe more, 13 years, I was all over the business. I mean... Everything. I was all over every detail. I wasn't, was I micromanaging? Maybe. I mean, everybody did their job, but I was very, very clear. There was a way to do it and a way not to do it. And everybody knew. I was very, very involved. And I think you have to be, because you you know what you're trying to build. And it's a complex, big business. And you want to set down the foundation, you know, very, very clearly. So I was very involved in, in all of that. And then in the last 10 years, I've been much less involved. You know, I've been a lot more kind of letting everybody get on with the, their own department mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, doing their own thing. Because the foundation is there. And they know, they, 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 um, they, they know what everybody knows what we're about and the proper systems are in place. And now I'm not involved at all. I mean, I stepped down as CEO 18 months ago or 19 months ago, and I'm a board member now. And I have, a, I have a mm-hmm. fa- absolutely fantastic team. And I get all the credit and you're talking, Gene did this, Gene did this, Gene did that. You know, but really, 
you know, I couldn't do anything without the team that I've been blessed to have. So my leadership style now is very hands-off because the, I think the right foundation is there to let the people flourish. But in the early years, I was building a foundation. So you're more trusting, more permissive? I, yeah, I think I was always trusting. I just wanted to trust but verify. It was the first 10 years. Now it's trust. Yeah. Okay, I get it. And you, you mature yourself, you know, as a person. It's not just that, you know, you're different than your 30s leading and your 40s oh, yes. leading and your 50s leading. You know? yes. so, I think we become much more self-aware as leaders and therefore we become much more aware of how our behavior can be detrimental to our staff. Yeah. If uh, we micromanage, if we're overbearing, if we don't give autonomy, if we don't have clear structured communication, if we don't have a reason for why people should be there beyond them getting paid. You know, we become aware of all the nuances in, um, in how people interact and how they get a sense of purpose and how they see themselves in the future and how, like, this is their view of the world, which is totally different to ours. So we become much more aware of like the perspective of those the people in our business. And we're able to give more love as well, I think. As the more we let go of our ego, the more we, we can radiate more, more love through just one-to-one when we communicate or, or through the initiatives that we... That I we think there's, there's a time for different leadership styles at the different stages of the business. Mm. Uh, I, I don't believe you can start up a business on day one, a founder-led business, and be kind of very laissez-faire. And you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't love. There's lots of great friends of mine, and they operate at thirty thousand feet, mm-hmm. totally always, and they have great ideas, but not that is execution's always a problem. Mm-hmm. I think there's a time when you need to be execution oriented and in the detail. And then if you get that, yes, and you get that foundation right, yes, then you can afford to go up to thirty thousand feet. Because there's, yeah. there's structure there. You're right. So, same thing with me. I, I, one of the reasons I stepped down as CEO is because I wanted to get my hands dirty and not be the person that really helped others become their best selves because that was too far removed. That was a 3,000 foot view. But I wanted to go down on the ground and, and, and put all my attention to detail and make the decisions about a new product needs to be implemented, you know, all the way down to the font color, mm-hmm. which would be extreme micromanagement in any other scenario. But that's what I enjoy being back in the trenches now. And, and as we wrap up, Gene, I have a couple of questions for you. So what do you think we as leaders need to rethink about culture? What, what do we mostly get wrong about culture, in, in at least in the public sphere? I think... Not seeing each the employees as individuals, mm. you know, because you try to make you're trying to see it's efficient if you see things collectively, you know, in one way. But you can't have you not everybody. They're not clo- They're not clones. So every employee is different. And we used to we used in, in we used to have this thing, you know, be different by being yourself. You know, everybody mm-hmm. is different. And this was before diversity and inclusion. It wasn't about that. It was about we had lots of different nationalities in the Middle East and even here mm-hmm. 
in Ireland. And I was saying, you know, bring it, bring that little piece of yourself to work every day because overall that makes the whole company better. And, you know, we, we didn't care, you know, what you did. It's just in the induction training. And what's, what's very interesting is I still do the induction training, even though I'm no longer CEO. The only kind of job I have in the company, apart from being on the board, the only job I have that I have to do and go to the office and do is the induction training for groups of new staff, okay? Because the current team, they feel it's very important that people hear the story from the founder. You know, it's a lot more authentic and they hear it from the horse's mouth. And, you know, one of the things I say at the induction is like, and I'm talking to these people and they're generally all from different nationalities and say, look, this is brilliant. This is great. Bring that part of your heritage and your history or whatever it is to work. You know, that's part of the mix. And what you do, and again, what you do outside of work, I have no opinion on. I really couldn't mm-hmm. care less. As long as mm-hmm. you have the customer service DNA, yeah. I take a very broad view of everything else, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have the customer service DNA, we can't go forward at all, you know? Mm-hmm. And not everybody's suited to the service industry. And there's a lot of research done generally in the U.S., but elsewhere as well, on what makes a great frontline employee in the service industry. What are the behavioral traits, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, empathy is one. A problem-solving attitude is one. The glass has seen the glass has been half full is one. Mm-hmm. And a team orientation is one. Mm-hmm. Some people just prefer to work on their own and not as a team. You know, some people, some people are built for research in an office on their own, doing desk work and they're mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant at it but they're but you put them on front of a customer and they they just don't have the the interpersonal skills for that and, yeah. and that's fine and that, that's fine so but there's a place there's, there's an absolute place for for everybody but if you put somebody in the wrong position it's it's not going to end well Gene, mm-hmm. i also know you are a uh, a bookworm you read a lot of books is there something you'd like to recommend for those listening and watching? Uh, okay, there's a, I, so many. I, I don't know. Just, just one. Yeah, one, uh, one. One that jumps out to the top of mind. I don't know why today is uh, "Good Strategy, Bad Strategy" by Richard Rommelt. I think it's the best mm-hmm. book I've I've read, uh, and I've read many. Mm-hmm. So that's that's. Thank uh, you. Thank you. I'll put that in the show. Can I give you a second one? Of course. Most of course. Heard. Of course. Building a Happiness-Centered Business uh-huh. by an Australian dentist called Paddy Lund. It's either Lund or Lund uh, E. L-U-N-D or L-U-N-D. I'll put those in the show notes. Building a Happiness-Centered Business. Yeah. Super. I wasn't aware of those. Vern's books. All of Vern's books. Yes. So scaling up. Rockefeller Habits. Mastering the Rockefeller Habits transformed our business. Hands down. Yes. Yeah, and that accelerator program we have in EO, which is teaching the Rockefeller habits. There's a lot of people who come out transformed from that. And uh, as we close, uh, you told us about three facts about yourself, Gene. Which are the truths and what's the lie? I was. I w- I spent the night under arrest in Kazakhstan. Wow. Uh, Must have uh, been an experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I arrived in with the wrong visa. So it, it was. Um, it, it it wasn't as bad as it sounds, but I still they still kept me overnight uh, under armed guard. 
I do run in excess of 35 mar half marathons, sorry, half marathons every year. I try and get out every weekend, but I don't get out every weekend. And the third thing I said, which was the lie, was that I have a passion for cars. I absolutely don't. My, my dream <laughs> car is a self-driving car because there's, one, there's very little I dislike more than driving. Yeah. <laughs> I was driving for four hours last night and I, uh, I could use a, a self-driving car for that instead. <laughs> Gene, uh, I really enjoyed the discussion. Me too. I really enjoyed the passion, hearing the passion you put in, in start, starting from a single thread, which is service-driven culture, to something that permeates your entire business, from bonus schemes to offering, offering flowers to your customers. I think we can learn a lot by founding a business on values we can believe in, at, their, at our very core as founders, and then insisting that those values are fleshed out and made real and made alive in every aspect of, the, of our business. And there will always be, like, every, every business will have its own fingerprint, like you said, you know, its only, own unique values. There will be people who are attracted to that business and people who aren't. But I think the authenticity that comes from starting a business with very strong, unique, deeply rooted values is golden, and it leads to, to, a, to an authentic business. Thank you for that. Thank you very much, Ed. And take care. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>